Amen. Please be seated. Well, we had a snowy week last week, and so some people were not here. And I also thought that it would be good to begin with a, a bit of a review in Revelation, because we've gotten into this new section that's different than the section where we had the uh, seven churches. Some of you may be having a hard time understanding this book since we got to chapter 4, where it transitioned from those letters that were to the seven churches to this part where John is seeing the visions in heaven. If you are having trouble, I want to exhort you to work hard to understand the, uh, the, the things that we're looking at. Because as we saw back in chapter 1, if you remember back then, um, there was a blessing promised to people who read this book and who put it into practice and understand it. And it, it, it's, I think that's said because these things are more difficult than some things to understand. But there's a benefit that comes from the, doing that. There are tremendous encouragements here for, for every believer. Just as we saw when we studied another difficult book earlier, the Song of Solomon, some of the richest blessings to the church are to be found in that book. It was the favorite book of many of the, uh, the Reformers. And uh, sometimes it's inaccessible to us. So we need to, we, we want to do that. And these also, with Revelation, there are tremendous encouragements here for every believer that we need today, especially with the things that are going on today in our world and that we face as Christians in the world. We've had for a long time in North America a rather cushy kind of a Christianity where we haven't had a lot of challenges and things like that. But that's quickly coming to an end as we see persecution on the rise. And what we're learning in Revelation is that it's the Lord Himself who sends those things. He sends them to His church. It's not like the devil's doing something over there and the Lord's going, oh no, what's the devil doing now? He's, he's involved in all of these things. He's the sovereign Lord. He's reigning. He has authority over all. So, uh, so what we've been seeing, what have we been seeing since we got to Revelation 4? Well, we've been seeing visions of what is going on up there, as it was. But it's not things that are actually happening up there. It's not like John could have gone up there with a video camera and taken a video of the stuff. These were visions of things that were going on, showing us things that are not things that you can see like that. In other words, there, there are things that they're represented by symbols and things like that. So it's a symbolic representation of what happened when Jesus went up to heaven that we see in Revelation. We got an introduction to this in the first chapter, didn't we? A little bit. Remember, we've talked about this several times to help us grasp what, what we're really looking at here. John saw Jesus walking around seven lampstands. So does that mean that Jesus is up there in heaven and there's all these lampstands, there are different churches, and he's walking around the lampstands all day long, kind of messing with the lampstands and things like that? Of course it doesn't mean that. We were told that the lampstands were churches. So the, what it shows us is that he's among his churches caring for them. And you see, that's shown in different ways in Revelation. It's shown with him there among the lampstands. It's also shown with him up the throne of the Father, and our praises coming up, elders and the, um, the, the, the four living creatures and these different ones that are representatives of the church, the church's praises are, are ascending up to God. And it's shown in a vision. It's not like that there's really these, these things there, but it's that this is a representation of, of what's going on. Uh, Jesus is... Uh, Jesus was not um, literally up in the clouds walking in, the, in these seven lampstands. The parable of the sower could be used as an illustration too. The parable of the sower is not, it's not about farming. <laughs> it's not to give us advice about farming or something like that. It's to show us what happens in believers' hearts when the word of God comes to them. That's the whole point of the parable. And Jesus said, you know, people don't understand parables. They make, make them blind. But he says, you, they, I'll explain to you the meaning, and then it will help you to benefit from it. We, we, again, we get some of our richest teaching from the parables. We learn about how 
hearts are hardened. When, there's, when the sun comes up, right? Not when the sun comes up, but when there's persecutions. He explains it. That, that's, that's the sort of thing we're talking about. So when we get to chapter 4, when we got to chapter 4, we saw an open door to heaven, and John was called to enter so he could um, be shown the things that were going to take place. The first thing he saw, you remember what the first thing was? It was a great throne. And there was an emphasis in that chapter. Throne, 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 throne. Why was that emphasized so much? Because God, the one who created all things, rules. That's what a throne is about. He doesn't literally, God doesn't have a physical body. He doesn't have a throne like that. But it shows us, with a visual representation, God is reigning over everything that happens. We saw symbols that were around his throne of his protection, like there was a rainbow, an emerald rainbow, different things like that, of his provision for his redeemed people. There was a sea of, for washing, because we need washing. We have to be washed all the time as sinners. And uh, all of this was meant to encourage us to trust him from down here, who is reigning in the invisible realm that we can't see. Okay, to, we, we trust him. It sometimes can look, when we look around us down here, it looks like everything's out of control. But we see up there, it's not out of control. He's in control, ruling over it all. We've got to get that in our heads so that we don't go crazy down here and get all paranoid and afraid when we see things going wrong and think that everything's, coming to, everything's going to be ruined. We also saw how the worship of the saints... I've kind of mentioned this already, how, how it rises up, like our praises, our prayers, all of these things, and they surround him. They surround his throne. There's elders around the throne. There's the, the living creatures that represent ministers, as we saw, because they're, they're, they're said to be redeemed. That's how we, the clue that we know that they're not angels is they're sometimes said to be. Some of the living creatures are angels in different parts of the Bible, it appears, but the ones in Revelation appear to be um, those who who are um, part of the church. And they're praising him as the creator who has all authority and power and dominion, who's on the throne. And that's what the church does, isn't it? That's what the true church does. We praise God who is reigning on the throne as our creator and our redeemer. We saw how he receives this worship and how the angels join in. Then we came to chapter 5. What, what were the symbols that we saw there and what were they showing what kind of things did we see? Well, we saw that there was a scroll in the hand of the one on the throne that was written all over. And it was like a plan, like God's plan, God's decree. And it was sealed with seven seals. And there was no one that could open it. And so it was distress, like no, John was distressed. No one can open the scroll. Who can open the seals? Who is worthy to take the scroll and to put this thing into execution, to put this plan into action? And no one was found. And then the, one of the elders came to John and said, uh, don't, don't weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has prevailed. Who's the, lamb of, who's the lion of the tribe of Judah? That's Jesus. That's the name for the Messiah. And they knew that was the name of the Messiah. And then John turned to look. And what did he see? A lamb. Not a lion, but a lamb that was slain as if it had been slain. See, that's showing us Jesus prevailed by the cross, the Lamb of God who was crucified, and now He's up there, up there in the invisible realm. He's reigning as our mediator. He always reigned as the Son of God, but now the Lamb of God that died for us, that is our brother, that became our flesh, He's up there reigning. He's a prophet, priest, and king. He has, he's the anointed one, the Christ of God. And He's there doing all things for us. We know from down here that Jesus went up to heaven 40 days after he was resurrected. And that he went up there, we know, we're told, God's word tells us very plainly, that he went to reign at the right hand of God till all of his enemies are brought under his feet as mediator. In other words, he went to establish his kingdom. But you see, we're given these pictures that when he got there, when he, when he ascended, he was handed this this scroll. He doesn't really have a scroll, but he's got the decree of God as mediator to carry out the plan. It was shown to us 
visually as a scroll put into his hand. And these are very powerful images. We were presented with a scene in which God had a scroll. No one was worthy to open it. And then he came. And what happened when he came forth? There was an eruption of praise. Right? Heaven was filled with, with worship. Worthy is the Lamb who is slain to receive riches and honor and power and glory and wisdom. Those, those words are put in different order, so I don't have to worry about what order we put them in when we try to quote them. In different places, they're always in different orders, which is kind of interesting. But anyway, um, they're, they're, they're just, uh, just praising God. Where was that praise coming from? Where was the praise coming from? You say, oh, well, it's from the, the elders that were around the throne and the, the four living creatures and the, and, and the multitude that was around there. But remember, what was that? What does that represent? It was coming from here. It was coming from us. Who is praising Jesus vehemently as the one who ascended to the right hand with salvation to carry out God's plan to establish his kingdom for us forever and ever? Who's praising him? The church on earth is praising our Lord Jesus Christ. Are the saints who have died? I, I don't even know for sure with the ones that died. We saw them under the altar there in one place. I'm not even sure exactly. But the point here is that the church here is praising God. And that we, what we see in that vision is our praises get to him. Our praises go to him. And then there are angels that are brought into the scene as well that are standing around the outside of that many, many myriads of angels, and they join in the praise because of what God did for us. The difference, remember the difference in the praises? When the elders and four living creatures praise, they praise him for redeeming us, right? By your blood. And the angels don't say that because they aren't redeemed by the blood of Christ. But they praise it. this one who has redeemed his people has been so gracious to redeem his people. So, so you've seen what we're getting hold of here we rejoice that Christ is established there to, in carrying out his plan unfailingly. Like he has all authority given to him in heaven and earth. And we get to see in the visions that John saw, him there reigning as the lamb that was slain, the one who cares for us. Okay, so last week we came to chapter 6. And what was the vision there? Jesus was beginning to carry out the plan. It was just the seals that were the first seals that were being broken there. And what did that involve? Remember the four horses? It involved sending out the gospel, the white horse, into the world. So the gospel is being preached everywhere, right? That's what was happening on the earth. How is that portrayed? Is there really a guy bouncing around on a, some kind of a celestial horse that's going around and that's how the gospel spreads? No, it's a vision that the gospel is going out. The gospel is going into the world as the church is preaching. And it's shown by, represented by, this white horse going out. What else went out? There were three other horses that went out. And those horses were sent from the same source. They didn't come from another place. They came from the same one. And what did they bring? They brought division. They brought inflation, economic inflation. It wasn't a real severe, but there was food prices went way, way up. That's at this juncture. Later on, it gets worse where people are starving. But right now, it was not quite as serious. And then there was death that came about from all the division. And so what was actually happening on earth as a result of that? There were all kinds of civil wars and things. Rome almost destroyed themselves at this period. We're thinking about the pre-70 A.D. period. Um, there, a lot of people thought it was, it was done, came back. But uh, when Nero committed suicide and there was all kinds of civil war going on and uh, people were really despairing. And then there was also, um, the, though the conflict primarily was with the Jews... There were those who believed and those who didn't believe. And the Christians were being persecuted. And then Rome was against both the Christians and the Jews. So the Christians had it really bad. Because they were being attacked by the Jews. The Jews had other civil wars that were going on with each other too. And the Romans had civil wars that were going on with themselves. And then the Romans were also attacking both Christians and Jews. Because they looked at the Christians as no different than Jews. Just a 
sect of the Jews, and they were wanting to like wipe them out, wipe out the temple, all of these things, which they actually did. But who sent all of that? Where did it come from? Who sent the horses? All four horses. It was the lamb. That was, why would he send these horses that are bringing division? He said he would do that. He said, I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword. When my gospel comes forth and people believe in me, I send division with that. Because people that are opposed, they rise up in hatred, and then I send conflict, confusion, division, all of these things as a judgment to them. Read the Old Testament. You'll see there's lists and lists of one of the things he says is confusion, strife, discord, war. I raise up armies. I make people afraid. All of these things are judgments that I bring. The Lord says that. And so Jesus is now the one that's carrying these things out. And, and then what else happens when you have those judgments? Well, there are other horses. There's things like food shortages. And then there's the problems of, you know, there's death and pestilence and various things that all come. And those things all happened during that period. Jesus said they would happen before he died in Matthew 24. And he said it would be a judgment because of rejecting him as Messiah. So you see, God is, it's his authority that's being exercised from heaven. And we need to recognize this. And uh, this judgment is against his people for rejecting him when he came to save them. He, uh, he, um, he is the one that has brought it about. So we're shown this because we desperately need to see it. We need to see he's ruling up there. Things are happening just exactly according to his plan, not anybody else's. His kingdom advances by this means. That's the crazy thing about it. When all, the, when all this persecution, all this division, all of these things occur in the earth, places where that happens, that's where the church grows the most. That's the, it goes with the gospel. The gospel doesn't come by itself in a little sealed off package. It comes with all these other things that create all sorts of upheaval and division and everything, and people come out alive in Christ. His kingdom is advancing by destroying and judging Satan and the world that follows him, while at the same time, it's gathering people into eternal life. The two happen simultaneously, not separate from each other. But with the fifth seal, what did we see? We saw that these hardships came on his people as well. That was where the saints were under the altar. What, which saints? The martyrs. The ones that had been killed for serving the Lord. There were lots of Christians that were killed when the gospel first went out. Because as I said, the Romans were coming after them. The Jews were coming after them. Paul killed people. Paul himself was killed. There was all kinds of stuff that was going on like that to try to wipe out the church. And so these martyrs are saying, Lord, uh, when are you going to avenge our blood that was shed on the earth? This is still going on. Like Our brothers are being uh, killed down there. And Jesus said, no, no, ha- have patience. I'm gonna, it's not going to be too long. He's, he's going to bring that great judgment, right? This down, destruction of Jerusalem and everything. But he's saying, be patient because more people have to die yet. He didn't say, oh, this is terrible. I didn't realize that was happening. This is what he planned. It's part of the gospel advancing. Some people are appointed to die for Christ in the advancement of his cause. Paul was, Peter was, John was. We can go on and on. Almost all of the apostles were. This was his plan and purpose. So so here are these souls told to be patient. This shows us then that all the turmoil, turmoil that happened in the first century was according to his plan. Even the turmoil that brought death to his own people. When things look out of control on the earth, They are not out of control. Jesus is reigning from heaven. He is carrying out his plan, and we need to trust him and to serve him with hope and zeal. Now, at the end of chapter 6, Jesus opened the sixth seal, and it was the one that brought disturbance to the rulers in the earth. And we talked about how Scripture always refers to rulers when it's using symbolism 
as sun, moon, stars, that kind of a thing. Celestial, they're, they're like the, the sun rules the day, the moon rules the night, right? We're told that. We saw with Joseph, like his uh, father and mother were the moon and, the, and the, his father was the sun and his mother was the moon and his 11 brothers were the 11 stars. You know, we, we see this again and again all the way back there in Genesis. And this was shown then by the overthrow of government was shown by disruptions in the uh, celestial, in the vision. It was a vision. It wasn't, there, there weren't really big stars that were falling down from the sky, that sort of a thing. But it was these disturbances. And we looked at the examples of how it shows the overthrow of government. So we also saw that those who are being shaken recognized that it was from the Lord. Now, people are haunted People that are wicked, that have rebelled against the Lord, the ones that had even crucified Messiah when he was so clearly showing. A lot of them knew exactly what they were doing even. And they're, this is him bringing his vengeance against us. Many of them recognize that. What did it say? Revelation 6, 16. They said to the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne, that's the Father, and from the wrath of the Lamb, that's the Son. He said, you'll see me coming in the clouds to judge you. This generation is going to see me coming in the clouds to judge you. For the, they say, for the great day of his wrath has come, and who is able to stand? Now, that's not necessarily literally what they said, but some of them may have. But this is what was going on in their heart is they saw their government being toppled and overthrown by the, by the Romans. It was from the hands of the Romans that this judgment was coming. But it was God's judgment, and they recognized that, and it was ha- it haunted them what Jesus had said to them. Now, coming to chapter 7, we have the answer to their question, who is able to stand? What we see in chapter 7 is our Lord's special care and protection of his church. But don't misunderstand. What did I just say a minute ago? We saw the people that had been martyred, and we said that was part of his plan. So what do you mean by the protection of his church? It looks like the, they were getting the brunt of it just as much or even more than other people. We have already seen that many of them died in accordance with his plan. At this point, they suffered under the hardships the same as everyone else up until this point, and maybe even more. So look at this from Earth's perspective, and you might wonder, is the church going to survive? Is it going to be wiped out? I mean, it was pretty small anyway. And then there's all these people that are dying and stuff and all this. Is the church going to be able to go on? Well, who's ruling? The lamb? The lamb that was slain? The lamb that's advancing, bringing about God's kingdom? He's doing these things to advance, not to destroy God's kingdom. And so what that means is he has a special care for his people. Okay, now look, look at it from Earth's perspective. You might wonder if the church is going to be wiped out. But in chapter 7... We see our Lord's special care and protection of his church. It doesn't mean that nobody in the church is going to die, but it means he's going to preserve the church such that she continues in the earth. She continues to do her work to represent him. She will never be wiped out. The church will never be wiped out. That's what we're shown in chapter 7. And we need to lay hold of this because we may come into some pretty hard times here in the days to come. You can see that that starting to happen, things lining up that way. And we must not despair. We must know that our Lord is reigning just as much then as any other time. And he's accomplishing his purposes in the earth. So let's look at chapter 7. Now we're, we're going to not go, th- I'm going to read the whole chapter, but we're not going to go over the whole thing today because I've done a lot of review here. After these things, this is Revelation 7, the word of God. After these things, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel ascending from the east, having the seal of the living God. Now this is, of course, different than the seals that we saw on the scroll. This is another kind of seal. And he cried out with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea. Angels were granted to harm the earth and the sea. See that? It's all orchestrated from heaven. And he said to them, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees till 
we have sealed the servants of God on their forehead. So they're going to do, they're going to harm, but not yet. There's, there's, there's going to be, there's a, re, a reprieve. Verse 4, and I heard the number of those who were sealed. 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. The tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude which no one could number, of all nations, tribes, peoples, tongues, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where do they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know... That was a wise thing to say. <laughs> so he said to me, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. That's kind of an interesting concept, isn't it? You wash it in the blood of the lamb and it gets white. It's symbolism, right? It's symbolism. Okay. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in the temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall never hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them, nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to, the living, to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Now let's just get our heads in the symbolism again. Living fountains of water. Does that mean that there's a bunch of people that are going to go over to a big fountain that's springing up and they're going to be drinking and stuff? No, it means that God's Spirit is going to be blessing His people with refreshing the, the living water that Jesus promised to give to his people. Well, so you mean I won't have to come to this well anymore and draw water? No, no, it means that you're going to have life from God's spirit, spiritual life given to you by, by the spirit of God. That's what it's talking about. Thanks be to God for his word. Regardless of your understanding of when these events occur, and I've told you that, you know, these, these things that we're looking at, these principles that we're looking at, if you want to put this in another time, I'm going to be putting it in the first century. I've kind of, kind of settled on that, even pre-70 A.D., you know, from, for this stuff. But if you see it as a later time, it doesn't really matter because the principles of what we're looking at, the things we need to see about him reigning, him orchestrating, all, all things, those are the things that are the same. And you could, you could take this and apply it to other times in history, too. We're going to, we're going to actually look at that a, a little bit later. But what are the things we see in this chapter? First, we see how the Lord preserves His church. That's what we're looking at this week. And then second, we see how the church worships Him for preserving us. And we'll look at that next week. I was, I was originally thinking of doing both of those, but I decided to do that long introduction. So if you're a believer, you need this encouragement. I've already touched on this. We live in a time when it's easy for people to think that Christianity is about to be completely snuffed out. If you want to know the truth, there's been a lot of other times when people thought that in the place where they lived as well. <laughs> very, very many times in history. Take a drive around you, though, today and see the churches in every hamlet all over Nova Scotia. There's churches everywhere. You know, almost every little valley, there's, a, there's another church over there. But many of these are now being converted into museums or they're just sort of like a monument, you know, that kind of an attractive thing on the side of the hill there or, or whatever. Uh, some of them are turned into apartments. Some of them are just torn down. Use, properties used for something else. When we started this church, over 85% of the people in Nova Scotia were baptized. As of 2021, less than 60% profess to be Christian. And that was a decrease of 18% over the last 10 years since the 2011 census. So 2011 to 2021... 
18% decrease in those who would say that they're a Christian in Nova Scotia. So it looks like things are really going, and they are bad. They, it is bad. What's more, the ancient faith is more and more looked upon as irrelevant to us. Just this past week, I spoke to one of our members whose dad was saying that our church was a relic of the past to do things like prohibit sex outside of marriage, you know, that kind of stuff to say people have to have, be married before they can have, should have sexual relations and that we would discipline people who, who uh, do that and do not repent. This father was advocating it's better to sleep around and you know, try a few people out before you commit to anything like marriage if you ever even do that. Um, so we're looked at, that, that's how people look at things more and more. Those who are true believers lament to see these things. We lament to see also true churches that are giving way to that very kind of stuff that I was just talking about that that father said. There are churches now that say, oh, well, it doesn't really matter. You know, it's okay. You know, God understands. He knows what we're like. And they don't call people to repentance. The Bible is very clear that people who practice such things, who do not repent of such things, that they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And that's, that's what the Bible says. And so this is a major heresy that is spreading through even churches that kind of still talk about that we need to believe in Jesus. And that, you've got the liberal churches that rejected the word of God. They're way down the way. But churches that are still kind of there with the gospel a bit, but they're starting to say, oh, well, you know, repentance, that's not really, that, that's the big thing that's coming today that we see all around us. In the public square where the church and her teachings had once been the foundation of our laws too, um, its doctrines are now largely excluded. They're even looked at as dangerous and harmful to the people. That's what we're facing. But all, all this can be very discouraging, but we should be encouraged to know that it has often been like this. There are places all over the world where the gospel once flourished that are now reduced to a small remnant. You say, why should that encourage us? Sometimes even a tiny one. It should encourage us because... The church is never snuffed out. It always rises up somewhere else according to God's plan. Those who lived in those places when the decline happened felt the same way we do. The church is just about to be completely gone, wiped out completely. But though God judged his church in one place, he raises it up in another place. So we need something to ground our hope. What do we have to ground our hope? What do we have? The Word of God. Promise of God. I'll build my church. The gates of Hades won't prevail against it. My son will reign until all of his enemies are put under his feet. We have something to ground our hope. And that's true. He will reign until all his enemies are put under his feet, including Satan and death. Those are enemies too. All under his feet, all subdued. That's what the outcome will be. That's what we have promise of. So we need to be encouraged in this matter that even though God brings us to what looks like the brink of ruin in one society, it really goes down, but another place, it, the gospel continues. So let's be encouraged by what John saw in his vision about this in chapter 7. Here in John, we get a vision of these things that we're talking about, of God preserving His church, looking out for her in special care. Part of the vision that the Lord shows us is that He preserves His church from heaven, something that can be shown best by this vision. So, see how our reigning Lord then preserves His church from His seat in heaven. His preservation of His people is visualized to John by holding back the winds of destructive judgment from the earth from the land, really, okay, earth and land, right, is talking about the land of Israel here, where the judgment was coming, that would bring harm to that place. So Revelation 7, 1 through 3 says, After these things I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the land, or the earth. So here they are, here's Israel, and there's angels at all the different places where the wind comes, the four different directions that wind would come, uh, holding the four winds of the earth, that the wind should not blow on the earth or the sea or on any tree. Now, was this really a concern about like tornadoes and hurricanes and things like that? No, this was winds of judgment that God had appointed, that the Lamb had appointed 
to bring down upon his people who had rejected him. The judgments that he said that are going to come later on in the next chapter, like with the trumpets that are blown. And you see, we're going to see it brings, he brings destruction to vegetation and different things like that. It says, then I saw another angel ascending from the east. Okay, so here comes another angel having the seal of the living God, some kind of way to seal uh, the servants of God. And he cried with a loud voice to the four angels to whom it was granted to harm the earth and the sea, saying, do not harm the earth, the sea or the trees till we have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So the winds here represent Christ's further judgments that will be unleashed against Israel. When the seven seals are open and then the seventh, when the seventh seal is open, the trumpets sound. But Jesus will not let it happen until he's protected all the people that he wants to be protected. Okay, so that's what from these disasters. Now, so do you understand what's being shown? We're being shown that Jesus makes sure that his church is not wiped out. He makes certain of that. Some believers will die, but he's going to mark out ones that will not die, that will be spared, and they will absolutely be spared. We know that people died when these things happened, but many were spared. We're to see in this God's great care for his people. This teaches us that when we see lots of believers dying from God's judgments upon a nation, nothing about it is haphazard. Okay? It's all planned. It all happens according to God's design. Jesus Christ, the mediator, is in control. He marks out the ones to survive, and they will survive. We see God's special care and providence, then, for His church. He maintains it as a witness in the earth. We need to trust Him in hard times. Now, the ones He marks out are 144,000 from Israel. Look at Revelation 7, 4, and 5. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12, and it goes, goes on, right? Okay, so the number is not to be taken literally. It re- represents a perfect number. In other words, just the right amount are going to be preserved for the purpose of Christ in His kingdom to advance on the earth. Just the right amount, a perfect number. There are 12,000, exactly, it says, from each tribe of the 12 tribes, making a total then of 144,000. A thousand in the Bible is is used over and over again. It's 10 cubed to show a wholeness, a fullness, a completeness of things. For example, go all the way back to the Ten Commandments. God's mercy is to how many generations? 1,000 generations. So that means 1,000 and one generation comes and it's like he's done? No. It means it, it's complete. It's whole. It's full. That's what 1,000 is almost always used for. A kingdom is 1,000 years. All, all of these things are, are, are pointed out that way. These numbers are, are symbolic. So it means that uh, he, he keeps showing mercy when it says 1,000 generations. Uh, these are spared that are Jewish Christians. These who are spared are Jewish Christians, those who believed in Jesus, Jews that believed in Jesus, like Peter, James, John, you know, those, those kind of guys. They weren't the ones that were sealed, though. They all died. <laughs> but this is the ones that were, uh, were sealed. Not all of them were spared, but they were marked out. He marked out a sufficient number that his church might go on. We know that they are believers. We know this because later on they are mentioned again and listen to how they're described. Over in Revelation 14.4, it says this about the 144,000. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You hear that? First fruits. You talk about, like when Paul goes to a place, he says, these people are the first fruits of Achaia, like the prophets of Achaia. Why were they called first fruits? They were the first ones to believe. They became the foundation, the seed of the church there. So who are the first fruits of the whole church? It's the Jews. That's where the gospel began. Jesus said, Jerusalem, then Judea, then Samaria, then to the uttermost parts of the world. So these ones who are Jews are the ones that are sealed 
so that this seed of the church would be preserved in this time when he was bringing judgment upon the Jews, right? The whole nation, all Israel, judgment was coming because of, because of their rejection of him. But he's sealing off these ones that are going to survive that, that time. So Jesus said that um, they, were the first, they, they, were, they were the ones that were saved in that first generation when Jesus was here. Okay, the Roman war against the Jews that brought about the destruction of the temple was so severe that there was danger that these Jewish believers could be wiped out with the other Jews. But Jesus gives special orders here to prevent that from happening. Again, this is shown to us by way of vision. John is not seeing these things happen. Do you realize that? He's seeing visions of what's going to happen. It's not like it's happening right now. This stuff isn't happening right now. He's seeing visions of future things. They were pretty near future, but it's visions. of it. Even the elders that he talks to, they, they aren't even people that are like there or something. It's, it's a vision of someone. He's talking to someone that's in a vision. And so, and so, again, we have to get our head in. This is a vision. This is a vision. This is, this is what we're seeing. So, so this is what's going to happen in the future to the church. There are many times in history that this same thing has been done. Okay, that people have been marked out for preservation. What happened in Exodus when Israel was in Egypt? They came out of Egypt and there was the Passover. What did God do? They were marked out. Now this time, because Israel had all this typology and they had symbols and all that, there was an actual literal putting blood on the doorpost. They did it themselves, killed the lamb, put the blood on the door. Then the angel came and didn't visit them with judgment. So that, you see, it, 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 ties, it ties it all together. But God told Israel to mark out their houses with the blood, with the Passover lamb that was sacrificed for their sins. And he instructed the angel of death not to visit the houses that were marked. He spared his people. Now, we read a similar account in Ezekiel 9. We read a similar account. God was judging his people, but what did he do? He marked out some who believed so that they would not die with the rest. What did it say? Listen to what, listen to what we read earlier. Ezekiel 9, 4. The Lord said to him, go through, the, the guy with the marking, go through the midst of the city, through the midst of Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of men who sigh and cry all, over the, all the abominations that are done within it. There were guys that saw the idolatry. I hope this is like you today. You see the perversion in the church. You see the corruption. You see idolatry. You see rebellion. And you lament. Okay? That's, uh, the ones who sigh and cry over all the abominations that are done within it. To the others, he said, am I hearing... Go after him. After he marks them out, go after him through the city and kill. Do not let your eyes spare nor have any pity. Utterly slay old and young men, maidens and little children and women, but do not come near anyone whom is, on whom is the mark. And begin at my sanctuary. So they began with the elders who are before the temple. Now, this is, there weren't people that were walking around with a big mark on their head or some kind of seal that was stamped on them in Ezekiel's day that an angel had put on them. What happened? What happened in the, those judgments? Babylon came in. Who did they take first? The elders, the leaders in the community. They took them away. Start with the elders, he said, that are around the altar. The ones that are supposed to be serving me, that are hypocrites, that are worshiping Baal and all these things. Take them first. Well, that's provident. That, that's, that's what was done in providence. But the Babylonians were the ones that actually did that. It was a visualization of how God was sovereignly ruling and bringing about his purposes. So the Roman war against the Jews that brought about the destruction of the temple was so severe that we would see some of these ones to, to be completely wiped out. Well, they won't be because they're sealed. Now, a, a similar thing to this happened Later, with the Domitian persecutions in Rome against the Christians, where God once again preserved his church. 
Now, many interpreters think that Revelation was written after 70 AD and that the persecutions that are spoken of in Revelation with the Christians, you know, they're dying and all this and they're marking out of the 144,000, that that occurred in the time of Domitian. And that's fine. I mean, it, it still the principles still apply, like I told you before. I don't think that's what it is, but whatever. Uh, what is spoken of here certainly shows that God preserves the church in every age. Let's think of some other times he preserved the church. He spared the church from the widespread heresies that were in the early church when, like Arianism, when Christ um, was denied, the, the deity of Christ was denied. He spared his church from that. It looked like everybody was going to fall, but he, he raised up his people and preserved them. He preserved a remnant when the papacy arose to great power and distorted the gospel, teaching reliance on priests instead of on Christ, reliance on departed saints and various things like that. And the way of salvation continued to go forward, even though with only a few, those that were marked out. More recently, he preserved his people from modernism that denied the scriptures to be the word of God and from neo-orthodoxy that made the scriptures interpreted in such a way that they don't really mean what they say. And today, he is preserving his people from the moral corruption that I mentioned earlier that has invaded the church and that would threaten to wipe us out. So we pray earnestly that he would preserve his church and he will preserve his people, but it may be only a few that are marked out. There were 144,000 there in the first century. And again, it's not a literal number, it's just a the number that needed to be for God's purposes. Now, the time that is spoken of here, then, I think is, again, probably the fall of Jerusalem. So you have these other times that these things would apply all through history, the similar kind of thing. But in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, Jesus told his followers, when you see Jerusalem surrounded, or when you see the abomination of desolation in the temple, when the Romans came and desecrated the temple, or when you see you know, the, the, the uh, armies gathered around. Then he said, flee to the mountains. If you're in Jerusalem, he said, don't go back and get anything. Flee to the mountains. And they did. There was a time when the Roman generals, Vespasian and his son Titus, both generals, withdrew from the siege at Jerusalem. And the Christians remembered what Jesus said. And Eusebius tells us in his history that they went to a place called Pella in the mountains nearby. Because Jesus said, go to the mountains. And they did not die. They were the ones, the Jews that were believers, that were sealed and that were spared. Uh, the Romans returned after that, and they brought devastating destruction to the whole city of Jerusalem by siege and then by uh, conquering it completely. The great thing is that our gracious Lord looks after his church. Many have tried to destroy the church but they can never succeed. They will never succeed. He lets many be killed, but he never allows his church to be wiped out. So in Revelation 9, I mean 7, 9 through 17, we see the church worshiping our reigning Lord Jesus for preserving these Jews. A great multitude that no one can number that was brought out of the great tribulation is worshiping. And that will be next week. Okay, we're going, to look, we're going to wait to look at that next week. So please rise and, uh, you know, let's, with prayers that reach up to heaven. Okay, remember? Remember the vision? Our prayers fill heaven. Let's lift up prayers to heaven. And uh, that God would be merciful to his people and preserve his church as he has in all ages. And let's join in with those in the church who... Give thanks to him for doing that very thing. Let's do that. Gracious Heavenly Father, it's a marvelous thing to think that our prayers are sending up to your throne, to your, to your ears, to your acknowledgement as we come in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb that was slain, the one that makes us acceptable to you. He's there and he's worthy for your kingdom to go forward. And that means that our prayers can be answered because Jesus is worthy. It means that you hear from heaven when we pray. And Lord, we want to praise you and thank you for the lamb that was slain, for the lamb that poured out his blood that we might be forgiven and who is worthy 
to establish your kingdom, who is reigning at your right hand until your kingdom is established in this world. We praise you and we thank you, O Lord. And we pray, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before your great majesty. Lord, we we thank you that you have preserved your church now these 2,000 years. And even before that, you preserved them in the old covenant. We thank you, though, now that Jesus has come and that persecution has raged through many different ages and heresies have raged through many different ages, but that in every case, you have preserved a remnant of your people. And we go forward and we go forward and we go on and on and on. And we praise you, Lord, that your church will never be destroyed. It will never be wiped out. That your plan is being carried out exactly according to your design. What is written in the decree. We know when Jesus came here, he said that it was written in the book that he would come and, and, uh, and, and do your will by offering himself as a sacrifice. That you prepared a body for him to do that. And we praise you, Lord, that these things are not just sort of things that just kind of fall out this way or that way. And we don't know how you we don't know, but you know exactly what will will be. And we know, Lord, that your kingdom will will go forward. And so, Lord, we're here giving thanks to you for your faithfulness over all these centuries. Here we are today in this part of the world praising you. And we lament, Lord, we're with those in Ezekiel that we're lamenting because so many people were turning away. They were turning to idols. They were turning away from God. They were turning to false religion. They were turning to immorality. And Father, we pray that you would restore your church and that you would preserve your church. And Father, we want to be among those that continue to serve you. And we pray, Lord, that whether we live or die, that we would be found in the Lord. We would be found faithful to the Lord. We thank you that it's by your grace that we're saved. Father, we cannot save ourselves. We cannot change our hearts. It's only you. And we pray that we would have boldness, that even seeing that you are reigning like this would give us boldness, that we would not feel like we're a little kind of helpless minority or something, but we would recognize that we're part of a grand plan of the great God who is on the throne and of the lamb that is before the throne and that overcame and has the scroll. Father, may we recognize these things and have confidence in them. We plead with you, Lord, have mercy on your church. Send forth your blessing upon her. We thank you for those lands where we see the gospel advancing very, very rapidly. And we pray that you would help them to continue to prosper in that way and that your kingdom would be established in these places, even in a visual, in a visible way. Father, that the reign of Christ would be known in those lands. It's not known so well here anymore. But Father, we know that that just as it wasn't known in Israel when they crucified the Lamb, that uh, you were still reigning, and even more than ever as you ascended up to the right hand. Oh, how we praise you, Lord. You will reign forever and ever. and You will reign upon the earth and from heaven until all of your enemies are put under your feet. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen.